Welcome to the Purest Form Podcast, my weekly ramblings on the artistry behind film and music. My name is Matt, and on the show today, I will be covering my critical philosophy when approaching music and film, giving you an idea of what to expect from the show from here on out, as well as ending the show with a few listener questions. Today's episode is going to be quite different from the standard format of the podcast moving forward due to the fact that I wanted to introduce everything up front, but I hope you can enjoy it nonetheless. But before we do that... All right, all right, all right, enough of that. So I just wanted to start off the show today with a brief overview of what you can expect from the show moving forward. Um, So we're going to basically have three main segments, uh, one for film, one for music, and the last one for whatever I want to talk about with some uh, listener questions at the end. The film segment, we will be watching a uh, different film every single week. Um, I have a full schedule up on the website. That's purestformpodcast.com forward slash schedule where you can check out the uh, films that we'll be watching and when. I will probably be removing a few of those slots so that we can have uh, options for listener-voted films that we can watch, but uh, I'm still kind of working on the logistics of that. Uh, So far, we're going to be watching through... I've I've basically been compiling a list on uh, just for myself uh, over the last couple of years of just a bunch of different films that have been suggested to me either based on their director or based on the quality of the film itself, but with a focus on cinematography and the artistry. Um, I actually posted on Reddit a while back about what, you know, what films would you recommend watching based on cinematography alone? And that's basically what we're going to be focused on. My one rule with the film segment is that we will not be watching anything currently in theaters. That's just because I don't want this to appear as though it's like a film review, because that's not really what I'm focused on here. It's more just looking at the art behind it and, and just appreciating the art form for what it is. The second segment will be all about music. We'll be listening to a different album every week, and this will be more of a review at times, but we'll focus mostly on the art as well. This will often be new albums, but I'll also include previously released albums from time to time. Basically, I wanted to leave this segment open so that I can talk about whatever I want to week to week, which is why I'm not scheduling anything in advance, just so if there's something new that comes out that I want to talk about, or if you know there's just been that album that I've... That's that's really hit me right in the nostalgia, and I just want to talk about that as well. I'm just free to do that um, rather than on a set schedule um, for like like we do with the the films. Um, but you guys can sh- shoot out anything, any suggestions that you have for me. Uh, you can uh, send me an email or tweet at me. Um, email is matt at purestformpodcast.com and uh, Twitter handle is at purestpodcast. So just shoot me anything that you think I might be interested in or just anything you really like that uh, you may want to be covered on the show. Um, this, this segment will always be the second segment and will be pretty consistent throughout the whole uh, show moving forward. And um, it'll end off with my track of the week. 
Uh, my track of the week this week is the intro and outro song for t- uh, this month, uh, which is Vampires by the group The Midnight. The Midnight is one of my absolute favorite bands, and you should definitely check them out. Uh, this, the third segment will be rather freeform. I'll talk about anything I want in here, a director, a film style, a technique, a specific band, going more in, more in depth on a song. Um, I'm playing with the idea of doing listen-throughs, where we basically listen to a song together and I give commentary on it. I don't know how that'll work with copyright, so I'll have to look into that. But at any rate, um, it'll just be up to whatever I want to talk about. And of course, if you guys have any questions for me, just shoot them my way at uh, the same uh, email and uh, Twitter. And um, I will, I'll address them. I'll, uh, I, I have a uh, open door policy, so to speak, where you can ask me anything you want as long as it's not political, and I will definitely answer it. All right, so moving on to the film segment for today's episode. Uh, this one, I wanted to be talking about my critical philosophy when I approach film. And basically, this is just my mindset when I view a film um, and how how basically I analyze it, how I think critically about it, and how I make up my mind as to whether or not I like it or what I like about it and, and so and so on and so forth. Um, I think this is something that a lot of people don't do a lot of these days. They just kind of shut their brain off and watch a film, which there's nothing wrong with at times for sure. So a lot of films are designed for that. I mean, you know, the the Meg that's coming out in in theaters pretty soon. That's basically entirely what that is. I don't expect that to be any kind of c- cinematographical wonder. Uh, c- cinema cinematographical wonder is that the term? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, it's just basically an action flick that you know is just fun, and so that that's fine. There's definitely a time and place for those. But a lot of the films on the the list that we'll be watching through are something that I want to take a little bit more care in and uh, really sit and think about. And so how I basically do that, I personally focus a lot more on the artistry, the cinematography, the presentation, the acting, the sound design, etc. That's what interests me. How the director uses the camera, that fascinates me. You know, to me, the biggest teller between a amateur director or just a director who's just going through the motions and someone who really loves the craft is how they use the camera that is incredibly telling do they use the camera to just show what's going on or do they use the camera to help tell the story that is that's quite something and and if you can really work on and well actually let me just go through a few examples here so first off steven spielberg um He's really well known. A lot of his latest movies have not been great. I'm looking at you, uh, Ready Player One. But at any rate, um, one of his classics was Jaws, um, which is not an amazing movie, but it's really great. You should go watch it again sometime. But basically, what there's there's several scenes in there, and one in particular that that um, sticks out in my mind, where when the first kid gets attacked and uh, the main character is on the beach. And he's watching it, and he first realizes there's that moment where he first realizes what is actually going on. And so what they did with that was they had this tracking shot moving forward to him. And that's basically where the camera is on a dolly that's on tracks that they literally push forward towards their subject, which in this case is the main character. And while they did that, they zoomed out. And that gets this amazing 
telescoping sort of effect on the shot, which makes everything seem really uneasy and weird. And it it really just, it, it gives impact to the moment and puts us in his mind. Even though we're looking at him, not what he's seeing, we really get into his mind space. And to me, that's awesome. Um, Another one is um, one that we'll actually watch uh, next week, which is um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. There's this one scene where basically the main character, I won't spoil anything, the main character is being confronted by some police. They say their line about how they're going to arrest him or something. And there's this brief pause. It's a comedy, so bear bear that in mind here. Um, the, The main character has this brief pause right after they lay out the evidence against him. And... Then he just takes off. He takes off running. And so from from where they are, from where they're standing, they're in this great big grand, I mean, the, it takes place in a hotel, and it's this magnificent huge hotel. And they're in the lobby. They're right in front of the, like, the check-in place, the check-in counter or whatever, right by it. And so he goes running off, and it takes a while to get to the end of the, the end of the room. And in the background, there's like three levels of balconies where there's flights of stairs going up each one. And so he just starts taking off towards them. And of course, all the cops run after him. But the camera stays put. It stays put. It doesn't follow him. If it followed him, it would lose a lot of the humor. What's so hilarious about the scene is the fact that it just watches him run off and it just sits there and it doesn't cut. And he just likes, you know, he runs up one flight of stairs and the police are chasing after him, stumbling up the stairs after him. And he runs up the next flight of stairs. Um, you'll, you'll have to see it in the next in uh, by the next episode. It's it's really, really great. And that's where Wes Anderson is using the camera to help tell the story. If he had done anything else with the camera, it would have lost so much of the impact of the hilarity of that moment. If he had followed them, if he had cut, if he had moved, just like kept it on a tripod or whatever and just moved it, it would have just, it would have completely ruined the shot. And so that's the kind of thing that I really appreciate with directors is how they're using the camera. Are they using the camera to help tell the story or are they just merely showing you what's going on? I'm looking at you, Michael Bay. <laughs> but anyway, so I also, uh, another thing I like to um, breakdown is the difference between the movie and the film. And this is something I'm going to use quite a lot. So let me try to explain it fully here. Um, whenever I approach a movie, I break it down into two components, the movie and the film. And the movie is basically the story in what physically happens, what, what literally happens in the movie. Um, the, the story, the progression, how the, you know, the character development, all of that stuff. Um, that's the movie. The film is the presentation, the artistry, the the, the, the cinematography, um, the acting, um, the sound design, the care, the the costume design, um, all of the the artistic and um, the things that because basically the movie is basically the fantasy of whatever is happening. The film is what literally people in our world are doing to create it. Um, I hope that makes sense. And so I will often analyze those two things independently because there's plenty of movies that are bad films, but there's plenty of films that are bad movies. And if you have a great movie that's also a great film, then you've got something really special. And so that just kind of helps me break things down and, and, and think about things so I can kind of compartmentalize and analyze things independently from each other. Because there's often times where you'll see something and go, oh, that was a great movie. And well, maybe it was pretty dumb, but you just enjoyed it a lot. But just like critically, it was 
pretty bad, but it was just, it, it was an enjoyable film. Um, I'm trying to think of a few off the top of my head, but, um, well, I guess here's an, an, an example of the inverse, right? Uh, no Country for Old Men. That's one of my absolute favorite films, but it's a terrible movie. Like, the whole thing is just bad. Spoilers here. But, like, this guy stumbles across money, and he's basically on the run from, like, this gang, and this assassin guy chases him down and eventually kills him. And he's, like, the main character is the guy that we're, like, rooting for the whole time, even though he's not that great of a character. And the assassin guy is, who's played brilliantly, um, but, like, he, he just kills him, and then he kills the girlfriend of the main character, and then he just gets away and roll credits. And that's, by all accounts, a terrible movie. But it's an amazing film. It's an absolutely breathtaking film. It's, it's shot so perfectly. Um, just shot for shot, everything is, is just flawless. And not only that, it has basically no uh, score to it at all. Think about that. No musical score to the film whatsoever. And the whole thing is this suspenseful thriller of what's going to happen next. And if you had um, a score telling you what to feel, you'd know what to feel. But because there isn't that, you just don't know. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what to expect. And that just totally accentuates every aspect of the suspense. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Which is why I love it. But then you look at the movie and it's like, all right, all of the character, the, the air quotes, good guys die. The bad guy gets away and you're just left going, well, what was the point of that? <laughs> so I don't know. It's that's that's why I like to differentiate between the two, because a, a younger version of myself might have said, oh, that was a terrible movie. But now I think I can look at that and say, well, the movie was not so great, but the film was absolutely amazing. And so that gets me on to another, another topic of um, showing the audience rather than telling the audience. So if you have a film where everything is spoon-fed to you through dialogue, something like NCIS or a lot of other uh, procedural TV shows do this all the time, just all the time. It's the most efficient way to get information from the writers to the audience is through dialogue. And so I get that. It, ha it has a necessity, especially in television. But in film, it gets really old really fast. And it also doesn't make any... It, it's, it's not compelling at all. And um, one of the biggest uh, perpetrators of this or, or uh, culprits of this is um, <laughs> the Star Wars prequels, to be honest. I like them. I maintain that, that Star Wars prequels are, are really... The, 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 the content of the story is really great. It's just... Uh, it's presented horribly. And most of that is because Luke, George Lucas wrote all of the character development, all of the story development, all of everything through the dialogue, not through the acting. He didn't let his actors act. And he like there's actually accounts of him on the set um like directing people to not to act less <laughs> like to to just say the lines in a specific way and um it basically leads to this really forced um exposition which isn't natural and it doesn't feel right and it makes things really cheesy you know Anakin you're breaking my heart it's like no come on show that she's a decent actor like let her actually act that out like you don't have to just just say everything. <laughs> so 
So there's that. On the flip side, you have directors like Alfred Hitchcock, who is one of my absolute favorite directors. And um, he was quoted in saying, dialogue should simply be the sound among other sounds, just something that comes out of the mouths of people whose eyes tell the story in visual terms. Whose eyes tell the story in visual terms. And that, I think, is key. Uh, Another great film that comes to mind is Drive. There's so little dialogue in that film, but you know exactly what's going on between all of the characters. It's brilliant, and, and maybe we'll, we'll watch that at some point. But, but yeah, Hitchcock just hit the nail on the head. And another one of his famous quotes was that silent pictures, silent films, are the purest form of film, which is where the name The Purest Form came from for this, for this show. And he, he really understood the, the aspect of showing people showing the audience what's going on and not telling them because what's the most powerful thing in any viewing experience is your imagination right and so if they if if he were to if he were to specifically lay out all of the different emotions and feelings of the different characters we'd know and there'd be no mystery behind it and we wouldn't be able to fill in any blanks but because he doesn't, our minds get to run wild with what could be. And, you know, maybe some of it's inaccurate, and that's maybe the risk that you take, but that's what's more impactful on a person, is being connected with the story and filling in all of those gaps for yourself. Um, and so that that's something that's, that's critically important, and that's something you'll hear me talk about time and time again as this show moves forward. Uh, but I've been rambling on a bit, so let me just get to a couple of directors that are really good at showing rather than telling and good with camera work. And that's, of course, Alfred Hitchcock. But then also you've got Akira Kurosawa, um, Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg at times. Obviously, he's not been great all the time. Uh, but the Coen brothers, uh, Wes Anderson, you know, there's there's a lot of, of really great uh, directors out there. And so you'll notice that a lot of these films that we'll be watching are... Um, from mostly mostly these directors. Um, I believe I've got Akira Kurosawa coming up in a month or so. Um, so, uh, yeah. So then, of course, directors that are bad at this, we've already talked about George Lucas. I've already taken a jab at Michael Bay. And, um, of course, most television is really bad at this as well. So um, Michael Bay, just briefly, I don't really have anything against him personally. He certainly makes movies that fill a specific role in Hollywood, and that's fine. Um, But they're never going to be heralded for their cinematography, just ever, (laughs) or their particularly good writing. They're just action films that are fun, but they're they're nothing impressive, um, critically, in my opinion. Um, but obviously like the Transformers movies, at least the, the first one is actually a really good film. And I actually like that one a lot, but at any rate, um, so that is pretty much going to wrap up the film segment for now. I've certainly rambled on quite a bit and, uh, we'll move on to music. So for music as well, I also wanted to cover my critical philosophy when approaching music. And this definitely takes on an, a, an entirely different kind of approach. Because a lot of people will say that 
music is entirely subjective. It's There's no objectivity to it whatsoever. All that matters is whether or not you like something and how it makes you feel. And there's definitely an aspect to that for sure, but I think we're, we're losing something if we say that music, like uh, objective standards don't apply to music, right? Because then you absolutely have no difference between someone like, I don't know, I like to pick on Justin Bieber, um, even though he's actually kind of talented, but there's no difference between Justin Bieber and Mozart or Beethoven. It's like, come on, there's there's clearly there's clearly a difference, in, or the Beatles, right? Like there's there's clearly a difference in in quality there. Um, now, I don't personally like Mozart or Beethoven that much. I know, shoot me. I it's just it's not my thing. Um, and there's a couple of Justin Bieber songs that I like. So at the end of the day, sure, however much you like it is all that matters to you. But I think there's definitely an era of objectivity and subjectivity to it as well. And I think we should look at that a little bit more uh, clearly. So firstly, for ob- objective uh, objectivity, when approaching music, um, I think it's it's definitely a, a worthwhile conversation to have is, is this music objectively good? And that's a little bit harder to analyze than subjectively, obviously, because you look at it and you go, or you listen to it and you just go, yeah, I like this, or no, I don't, or whatever. That's super easy. But object objective standards are a lot more harder, uh, a lot a lot harder to quantify um, and specifically analyze, and they take a lot of time, which is why a lot of people don't do that. And if you don't, that's okay. But I like to, so I'm gonna talk about it for a little bit. So, <laughs> um, so basically. Objective standards of quality in music. You have things like creativity, um, th- things like not necessarily complexity, because you can have incredibly simple songs that are incredibly powerful. Um, so that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad if it's simple. But creative. Are you doing the same four chord progression that everyone and their brother has done since you know time immemorial? And if so, then maybe try to do something a little bit more creative. Are you writing in the key of C? Uh, you know, if for for those who don't know music theory, the key of C is by far and away the most common uh, key that uh, people compose music in. It's there's no sharps and flats, and it's a major key, so it sounds nice and it's not complicated. So you know, if you're writing in C, like okay, maybe it's best suited to that, but but maybe you're just being a little lazy. I don't know. Um, so there's things like that that like if if those simplistic choices that you make when composing a piece impact the the message and the tone and and the point of the song if they actually expand on that then great but if they don't if they're just kind of there because that's it's easy and they're accessible then that's not something i can really say is an objectively good song but that gets back to the whole point here is what is the message of the song and are the cho- choices you're making with the composition of the piece furthering that message or are they just kind of they're just, are they just kind of there and that's what i think a lot of people don't really consider a lot these days i, I know there's plenty of artists who do but i think a lot of the mainstream stuff like the top 40 music the reason why i don't particularly like much of any of it is just that it's very one-dimensional it's very simplistic and it's just there to try to make money which i don't fault people for trying to take money to make money like they're trying to run a business and make a career like that's fine you know make money 
And if you can just create a simple song and make a lot of money off of it, good for you. But I look for something a little bit more deep when I listen to music. And that's why there's a lot of a lot of the top 40 stuff does not resonate with me at all. Um, just because it's really simple and it's, you know, another love song or I'm going to the club and getting drunk song or whatever. And that's been done a bajillion times and it's not interesting. So we get to back to, I guess, what is the message and um, what are you doing compositionally and lyrically to further that? Um, and that's another thing that I look at is lyrics. Um, personally, the feeling of the music itself is what most impacts me. That's what will most likely draw me to a particular song over another is the music behind it and whether or not that resonates with me emotionally. And I, it's, that's purely subjective. Um, but one of the objective standards I look at is lyrics. How well are the lyrics written? And that is something you can be a lot more clear and cut and dry with. Um, you can you can look at lyrics from uh, most top 40 songs, and they're super boring. In fact, hang on a second here while I pull up the current top 40 song on the radio right now. All right, so through the miracle of editing, I have actually just listened to the current number one song on the billboards, and that is, of course, In My Feelings by Drake. And first up, let me just say that I actually kind of like the sound of the song. It, it sounds nice. I, I kind of like it. The beat's you know, pretty chill and it's not bad. Uh, but lyrically let's, let's just get into this here. And this is, this pro exactly proves my point. It says, um, <clears throat> uh, in the intro trap, trap money, Benny. I don't know what that means. Uh, this shit got me in my feelings, whatever that means and gotta be real with it. Yep. Uh, all right, cool. So moving on chorus, uh, number one is Kiki. Do you love me? Are you writing? Say you'll never ever leave me, or sorry, say you'll never ever leave from beside me, because I want you and I need you, and I'm down for you always. <laughs> sorry, it's hard to keep a straight face. Uh, KB, do you love me? Are you writing? Say you'll never leave from beside me, because I want you and I need you. I'm down for you always. <laughs> uh, verse one. Uh, look, the new me is really still the real me. I swear you gotta feel me before they try to kill me they gotta make some choices they running out of options because i've been going off and they don't know when it's stopping <laughs> sorry this is this is this is funny so i mean obviously you can see here like this is just really simplistic straightforward lyrics and now granted it works for him he's number one more power to him but like this is what i mean this is this is just so straightforward and you know exactly exactly what he's talking about and i mean or except for if you're like me and don't have much street cred and don't know what the lingo means but you know uh, he, it's pretty it's 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 very surface level like you you get it first time you hear it so contrast that with something like um let me go to one of my favorite bands that i mentioned earlier the midnight uh midnight and let me pull up shadows lyrics all right so this is one of um one of uh the midnight's more recent songs that came out last year and uh the uh the fir first verse goes like this the city carved in a silhouette on the ocean after dark 
over the lonely and the holy and the red blood beating hearts. Up from the dirty black water, a shadow void of form raised itself out from the river and it climbed upon the shore. Neon on the blacktop, there's a gentle rain downtown, a shadow pooling underneath me as it follows on the ground. Kissed you when I saw you, stared deep into your eyes. I meant to say I love you, but instead I said goodbye. Um, shadows in the city, I'm a stranger to myself. On, this, on these streets, I'm someone else. Shadows in the city, like a demon in the dark, come to tear us apart. Um, and uh, he goes on later, he says, For all my good intentions, there's a shadow in the dark. It comes to me infrequently and breaks your perfect heart. Um, I don't know why I do it. Apologize, but it's too late. A single tear, you leave me here, and, a sh- and the shadow slips away. And so here, I mean, this whole song, he's talking about how he often finds himself doing things that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't know why, and that he wishes he wouldn't do, but it's he feels like he doesn't really have any control over it, hence the shadow metaphor, that it comes from a dark place, um, you know, the dirty black water, it's a shadow, it's a void of form, um, and it, it pulls itself out of the water and comes, finds me and takes me over. Um, and he says, you know, for all my good intentions, there's a shadow in the dark. It comes to me infrequently. That's what he's talking about there. And he says, I don't know why I do it. I apologize, but it's too late. A single tear and you leave me here and the shadow slips away. And it's like once I've done the thing that I don't like doing, the shadow just leaves me and I have a clear mind again. And I'm looking back going, why did I do that? And, um, you know, I'm a stranger to myself on these streets. I'm someone else. Like a demon in the, tar- in the dark come to tear us apart. Like this, this is a lot more creative lyrics this gives you the story, but you have to kind of dig for it a little bit and listen to it a couple of times to really get it. But that gives you everything, and it gives you so, so much more than the, the literal words on the page. It paints the entire picture and the whole story of, of who this person is and, and what's happening. That's what I look for in lyrics, is actual creativity and actual uh, depth beyond just the surface level impressions of what words can convey. Um, but as for sub- subjectively, obviously you like different things and, you know, maybe sh- you go listen to Shadows by the Midnight and you don't like it. I think you'd be crazy, but you know, you, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, you, you do you, that's, that's fine. But I don't know. That's, that's why I look at music both objectively and subjectively. And at the end of the day, the subjective, the sub- subjectivity wins out. Because I can look at the Beatles and say, objectively, very well-created music, especially for the time. Lyrically, really insightful and um, really creative. But subjectively, I don't like it and I don't ever listen to them. I, I do not like the Beatles at all. But I respect them for the musicians and the lyricists that they are, or were at the time. And that, to me, I think is is a really a really healthy way of looking at it just because I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, someone would say, Oh, I'm listening to such and such band. Um, and I'm like, Oh, they suck. And I'm like, man, I was an idiot, but I guess that's the sign of personal growth is when you can look back on yourself and say, man, I was an idiot, but thank God I'm not anymore. Um, or at least not in that way. (laughs) But, but yeah, it's like, it's the difference between looking at a band you don't like and saying they suck and just saying, Oh, I don't, I don't really care for them. Um, but I like this other group or whatever, and then you can actually have a productive conversation with someone. So at the end of the day, objectivity versus subjectivity. Subjectivity wins out, and I think is overall a little bit more important to the individual. 
Because obviously you're not going to listen to something you don't like, no matter how, air quotes, good it is. Um, and so that is really important. And at the end of the day, it is art. And the question you should be asking yourself is how does it make you feel? And I know that that's really surface level and wishy-washy on, on, you know, uh, on the outset, but I think that is actually really important. If there's a really simple song that has really simple lyrics, like Drake's in my feelings that, you know, really resonates with you, then that's entirely Okay. And you don't have to feel bad for listening to that and, and loving that song, even if it's super simple. But, but you know, I I don't know. I think I think we we lose something as a society if we move away from any kind of objective standard of quality. Because then, what are you left with? And why do people make art in the first place? Why do people make music or film in the first place? But um, but that's just that's just me. All right, and moving on to the uh, last segment here, and uh, for this week, we're just going to kind of keep it simple. We've already kind of gone a little bit longer. I try to aim for 30 minutes, but uh, um, but for today, I'm just going to take one listener question, and uh, this actually comes from Jessica. I met her when I do my day job, uh, or night job, because I drive mostly at night, um, but at any rate, I, um, I, I'm a driver at night, and that's, that's what I do uh, to earn the big bucks (laughs) and you know you meet a lot of people and um i uh, i met jessica a few weeks ago and she had this question she basically wanted to know what do you think of a band sounding a certain way on their first few albums then drastically changing their sound later on and the example that she gave was mumford and sons obviously they had a very specific sound in their first album and their second one and they changed it very much so for their uh third and anything they've released since then and um, I think this is a really important question because um, obviously people change their sound. Now, Mumford & Sons, I think, were a drastic example of this because everyone absolutely loved their first album. And then when they released their second album that sounded exactly like it, then everyone critiqued them and were like, you sounds exactly the same, even though that's what everyone was praising initially and that what they wanted more of was that. So they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place there. But... Um, but then on their third album, they changed up their sound quite a lot. It still sounded like them, which I think is really important and something I'll get back to. But they, they sounded, their their overall genre, even almost, completely changed. And, um, you know, she so Jessica here wanted to know what my thoughts were on bands that do that. Um, I think another example, just to, to uh, um, throw this out there, uh, Linkin Park is another example of this. If you look at um, Hybrid Theory and the Meteora, they had a very specific sound that they were going for in the early 2000s, and then by 2006 or 7, whenever Minutes to Midnight was released, it changed a lot, and most people really hated that. Um, but um, it changed a lot, and, and they continued to kind of develop their sound as they moved forward. And so... My personal opinion on this is I really appreciate when bands do this. The last thing I want to see is a band get completely stuck in a rut, right? And they're making the same kind of music every single time. And um, a couple of uh, different artists come to mind who do that. One of them was um, Summer Heart. Go listen to basically all of his early stuff, and it's just exactly the same. Sounds exactly the same. And, you know, I like it, but I, you know, it's it gets old after you, you know, the, the second EP of, of the same thing. (laughs) So, 
Um, there's that. Plus, like, Dragon Force is another one where they're just, like, completely, they sound exactly the same in all of their songs. Um, I don't know if their later music changed. I just know from their first, like, even their, their um, uh, the one with uh, Through the Fire and the Flames, like, all of the songs on that album sound exactly the same. Um, but um, also another one was, uh, crap, I need to track these guys down. One moment. Do, 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 do. Where to go? Where to go? Where to go? Ah, New Arcades. There it is. New Arcades. Uh, they're a kind of new retro wave sort of group. And um, a lot of their early stuff sounds incredibly similar. But then they start to actually develop their sound a little bit and, and break out of that. And their latest EP that came out earlier this year, Nothing Is Lost, that EP is actually really good. Like, really, really good. And it's it's different from their original stuff. It still sounds like them, but it's different. And so the last thing I want to see is a band or an artist get stuck in a rut of, of the same kind of music or the same sound. Um, and if, if they never get out of that, I think then they're just kind of stifling their own creativity. Um, I mean, they, they can be. Maybe they're just really into that and they want to make every sound under the sun that sounds like that, which is fine. You know, they can go do them. But that's, that's, not, what, that's not what interests me. So what I like to see in artists is someone who feels free enough to evolve their sound and to, because because people grow, people change, people get more skilled, people, um, you know, develop just as they get older. Um, and if you keep someone locked into a specific sound, it's kind of like what happened with Tom DeLonge and uh, Blink One Eighty Two. He just kind of outgrew Blink-182, and he made Angels and Airwaves, which is, which is a much more mature sound um, and was honestly a lot more creative. It was a huge creative outlet for him. And, um, and, and I hate to see artists that are, that are kept in that sort of... And I also hate to see when their fans react negatively against them trying to evolve their sound, right? Like what happened with Linkin Park. They had a huge backlash... Um, when they released Minutes to Midnight, even like my brother was like, ah, they're terrible. They, you know, they suck. Uh, you know, only Hybrid Theory and Meteor are the only two good albums of theirs. And, um, and you know what? They've continued to grow their sound since then. And um, they, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's it's an incredibly important thing for an artist to be able to um, to, to evolve as they move on. Um, at the same time, Obviously, if you really like their old stuff and don't like their new stuff, that's okay too. It gets back to what I was saying before. At the end of the day, it's it's what you what you like, and if you don't like their new stuff, that's okay. You know, there's there's a couple of artists that have changed into a place where I don't really like them anymore. Mumford, Mumford and Sons is one of them. Um, their 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 third album was actually really good, but the stuff that they released since then is like what I don't I don't know. Oh, and an even better example is Bonnie Vare. Um, his first two albums were amazing and I still listen to them frequently. And then he comes out with his album like last year or the year before, that's just bonkers. And I'm like, what even is this? <laughs> and so I, I don't know. That's, I, I respect, I, I appreciate the fact that he feels free enough to, to, to do whatever he wants and that's, you know, good for him, but I just don't like it. And that's okay. If you approach something and, and if one of your favorite bands releases a new album, that's just that you don't like that's an okay thing, but um, I, I think it, you should also be able to step back and just say, you know what, I'm glad that they feel the freedom to be able to do this, that they don't have pressure from a label 
or whatnot saying that we need you to keep this specific sound because that's what sells or whatever. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of different sides to that. And I hope I answered that, um, though verbosely, uh, I hope I answered that, um, pretty clearly and efficiently. So that's all for the show today. Um, you can uh, find the show on my website, PierceWarmPodcast.com, or on iTunes, or um, I'm looking into maybe posting it on YouTube. I'm not sure, but that's going to be the main places is iTunes and my website. Uh, you can hit me up at Matt at PierceWarmPodcast.com or on Twitter, and that's at PierceWarmPodcast. Um, and you can hit me up with any suggestions for music, for films, for any kind of questions you have. Again, you can ask me anything you want, as long as it does not have to do with politics, and I will answer it on the show. And uh, the closing song that you're hearing in the background here, that is Vampires by The Midnight. You should definitely check out The Midnight. They're um, one of my all-time favorite groups, and um, you can find them anywhere um, that anyone would be on social media, YouTube, Facebook, all over the place. Uh, Check them out on Spotify or iTunes, uh, Apple Music, whatnot. And so for the show next week, we will be watching the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, So you can watch that between now and then and take part in the conversation. Hit me up on uh, Twitter or via email with your thoughts on the film and, um, you know, take part in the conversation there. So that's going to do it for me today. Thanks so much for listening to the Purest Form Podcast. I've been Matt, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. I'll see you next time.